Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Let me lead off this morning with this announcement from Planned Parenthood. Uh, Planned Parenthood is finally, let's describe it this way, coming to grips with its uh, racist origins. Planned Parenthood was founded uh, by a woman named Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger um, wanted to eliminate communities of color because she did not view those uh, communities as uh, as worthy. She did not want people in those communities reproducing. Planned Parenthood was begun as an effort to eradicate poor black urban populations. Now, for those of us who are pro-life, we have known that about Margaret Sanger. We have trumpeted that about Margaret Sanger. Um, She was the foremost proponent of the eugenics movement in her day. She was motivated by a particular animus toward poor non-white people. Um, Her campaign to legalize birth control was motivated in large part by her desire to prevent what she described as unfit and feeble-minded people from reproducing. We have known this uh, as pro-life people for a long time. We have declared this information for a long time. Planned Parenthood has apparently finally woken up to the reality of its racist origins, and so they have removed Margaret Sanger's name, or in the process of removing Margaret Sanger's name, from a building. Uh, They still intend to continue killing the next generation of urban people. They they still continue to... uh, seek to eradicate poor people. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to frame what they do. I mean, you can dress it up, but um, it's, it is still what it is. There is a reason Planned Parenthood builds abortion clinics where they do. Um, and they will tell you that it is because women in those communities are underserved by uh, other health care providers. However, there are in those communities um, crisis pregnancy centers funded, built, and run by believers, people who, in contradiction to Margaret Sanger's horrific worldview, um, there are those of us who believe that every person is an image bearer of the living God, made on purpose, on God's purpose, for God's purpose, Um, in God's image, and has the full dignity of an image bearer, regardless of the color of their skin or the circumstance of their conception. So, uh, when you read the headlines today that Planned Parenthood is finally coming to grips with the racism of its founder, uh, please be prepared today to have a conversation that is genuinely pro-life, pro-life from conception to natural death, 
pro-life for every person at every stage of life, regardless of uh, where they are conceived around the world. Which brings us uh, to a conversation about, well, it, that that's actually, <laughs> that could be a jumping off point for a conversation about almost anything. So uh, today it, it's going to be uh, a jumping off point um, here right now for a conversation with Pastor Daryl Crouch from the Green Hill Church. He blogs at crosstide.org. I'll, I'll just use that uh, as my um, as my setup. His um, his latest blog is entitled "I'm Done," all capital letters. I'm done with politics. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking now with Pastor Daryl Crouch. He's the pastor of the Green Hill Church. He blogs at crosstide.org. He also uh, helps to lead Everyone's Wilson, which is efforts in his own local community and county to have the gospel come to bear in tangible ways uh, upon the real issues that people in poverty face every single day. Daryl, welcome back. Great to be with you, Carmen. Thanks. So you're done with politics. Um, that is the headline. Um, let's uh, let's start with a conversation about why a pastor would ever imagine that politics would be something that they should think about and engage in. Well, I think if we're people of faith, you know, when the, the old cliche is that uh, there's two things you don't talk about, religion and politics. And uh, I, th- I think those are the only two things we should talk about, really. Uh, I think the way that our faith shapes uh, our lives uh, necessarily puts us in the public square. And um, the, the, the gospel is relevant to the way that we treat one another and the way that we advocate for people. And so I'm done with politics is obviously a, a bit of tongue in cheek. And uh, because of the rising frustration that uh, people of faith have and our tendency to want to check out, and that is just not an option if we care about our neighbors. So this really is um, a different way, I think, a different way of helping uh, people think about culture, people think about politics, and and their own, um, the, the power that every individual has, particularly here in the United States of America, to advocate politically. And when we talk about politically, we're not talking about red or blue. We're talking about how I bring the force of my life to bear in the conversations of the day that bear on um, the issues that people are facing in my own community and and here across the country and even around the world. Uh, absolutely. And not only our power, Carmen, and I think that's important, our influence is important, but uh, the Holy Spirit of the living God dwells within us. And it is His power that is at work in us. And so for us to enter into the public square is for us to to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust Him for supernatural transformation. So much of our frustrations or so much of our anxiety and so much of the the uh, things that are amiss in our world, whether it's the unborn or those who are in the margins, the vulnerable uh, or other injustices, uh, so much of the change that we long for uh, is only possible uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's uh, political activism is really important and advocating for social change is really important and voting our values, all that's really important. 
But ultimately, our presence in the public square means that the, the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us to bring about real transformation in the lives of, in the hearts of people that would ultimately rise, raise the le- uh, water level for, for everyone. And uh, when Christians walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and walk as Christians do, uh, everybody uh, gets better. And um, as we seek the welfare of the city, the Jeremiah 29 passage, as we seek that uh, with uh, the Lord working in us and through us, uh, I, I just think incredible things can happen. When we step out of that, uh, what do we expect? When we just limit our political involvement to voting, which is an incredible privilege, as I state my in my piece, it's an incredible privilege and responsibility. But if we just limit our act activity in the public square to voting, I think we're going to be really disappointed and really divided, frankly. Let's talk um, about that particular that particular paragraph. I'm going to read it. Voting is a gift of God to the citizens of our republic. It's only one of our responsibilities to our neighbors. If we are most known by who we voted for in the last election, I doubt seriously we're going to make very much progress in making disciples of Jesus or joining his kingdom work. If we're most known by our political affiliations, then win or lose after Election Day, we, we, we've likely lost a friend or two. More importantly, we've likely lost the opportunity to actually influence people who don't already follow Jesus with us. Talk about the, um, the challenge that we face as passionate people— um, who are more concerned about wearing a political jersey than um, than manifesting Christ in the world? Yeah, and it really is an important question and, and a difficult one to walk out on a daily basis. Uh, I'm really speaking to the political tribalism that uh, is emerging in our culture today that divides us between red and blue or between one candidate and the next. And so if if the only thing my neighbors know about me is the sign I put in my yard, I'm not saying we shouldn't put signs in our yard. I'm not saying we shouldn't wear buttons and be politically active. That's everybody's personal disposition, but um, preferences. But I, I think if that's the only way our neighbors know us, if that's the only way the folks on social media hear from us, if that's the only context they have, I just think it's going to be really divisive. Ours is we're a part of a bigger kingdom. So I think our loudest voice, if that's the right word, our loudest voice should be for things that matter eternally and for the way that we love our neighbor. Our our neighbor may find that we voted for a different candidate than they did, but they should never question our love for them and our our desire for their best. And uh, they should never be afraid to have a conversation with us about things that are meaningful, including politics because they think they're, they're going to get blasted or uh, marginalized somehow in our, in our relationship. And so my, my point is to break down the political tribalism that is so emerging that divides us and then limits our ability for gospel impact. Um, we think we're advocating uh, for something great when we're advocating for a political candidate, but that political candidate, uh, the only people we have to vote for are humans. And so uh, human systems are going to fail us, and humans are going to fail us. But um, my my hope is that our focus and our reputations would be known by how we love one another. Mm. Daryl and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. We might also touch on some other things just going on yeah. in the life of his community. Um, 
Uh, Daryl, maybe I'll ask you what you're what you're hearing about uh, the going back to school conversation in your own community. And maybe we could talk about um, what's just what you're observing in terms of people who are um, whose lives are very fragile already, um, who are very, very vulnerable. Um, and maybe as this pandemic wears on um, the weariness that people are experiencing, I'd just love to have your observations on some of those things personally. We'll be right back. Awesome. Continuing my conversation with Pastor Daryl Krauts. You can find him at Crosstide. Uh, oh, I got to read the whole thing, don't I? Let's see. Uh, <laughs> let org. me find it. Yeah. Crosstide.org. Um, Daryl, um, I read yesterday that something like 22% of American adults have moved during the pandemic. Now, a, a huge part of that is that young adults, um, you know, had to relocate from their college campuses across the country. Um, and go back home. So that's that's a huge part of that number. But the other part of that is people um, being forced to move um, for all kinds of economic reasons um, and and reasons related to work um, and the lack of it uh, on and on and on. Um, I'm wondering I'm wondering what you're observing where you live um, and and the connections that you have through everyone's Wilson with particularly the school community. Um, because through our schools, we really do have access to relationships with people who are very different from us. Um, and so I just just like some reflections on where we are now and um, and your sense of things. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the statistics of people relocating and uh, are reflective of, of um, or at least an illustration of how disheveled we are and how uncertain we are and how transient things are at this moment. And um, when a few months ago, several months ago, a year ago, we would be planning for three years out, and now we're planning for three weeks out. And, and so I think everyone's uh, holding their plans very loosely. We've seen, a, we've seen people take this time to relocate, whether they're uh, early retirement uh, or kind of in that age, empty nester age, and uh, they've had the opportunity to now relocate and be closer to grandkids or whatever it is. This season has given people opportunities as well as it's, uh, and it's certainly given uh, other people great uh, ob- obstacles to making their next step in their career or in their family life or whatever it may be. And so everyone's at a different place. And I think one of the things that we've seen is that these difficulties and this uncertainty has uh, un. Uh, unveiled a lot of gaps in our family structures, uh, in our health uh, conditions, in our financial conditions, uh, that we're very porous. And uh, that's always been the case, and that's not new, but I think difficulties reveal that. And then um, when you add in the social media piece that people are online a lot uh, sharing uh, about their life and about their views, I think those that porousness, if that's the right word, uh, is revealed even more. And the gaps in our lives uh, create a lot of anxiety. And so I think we're, we're dealing, we're, we are in a unique time. We're in an important time, though, that as porous as we are and as porous as we've always been, you know, there is a gospel hope and that the Lord is with us and that these are difficult days 
but these are not new days in terms of we've there's been difficulty for a long time. And so I do think we can point people to a hope that is in Christ and and to again to love our neighbors well and just to step into their lives as best we possibly can. And so we've seen that. We've seen a lot of disheveled kind of um, behavior and people that are anxious. And anxiety creates a lot of other sideways energy in our lives. Uh, we don't always get along well with people. We're uh, short-fused and short-tempered. And again, social media has given us the opportunity to express that. And so uh, maintaining the uh, unity in a community uh, or even in a church fellowship is um, is a real challenge as well. So I think all of us can do our part to uh, give each other the benefit of the doubt, uh, to imagine. Can you imagine? I know in our situation with schools trying to reopen, and uh, they've announced a hybrid opportunity that kids can be uh, virtual uh, or they can be uh, on, on campus. Uh, but you've got sports, you've got uh, extracurricular things that kids want to be a part of. You've got parents deciding to homeschool their kids instead, folks who have never done that. And so there's a lot of people who are feeling a lot of burden and, and new, new kinds of pressures that they've never felt before. And so I think for us to, to again, be a gospel hope and to serve, uh, our opinions aren't all opinions about social issues, about COVID, about uh, mask or no mask. Our opinions about that are secondary to us just coming beside our neighbors well and serving them where they are today. Because there's a, there's a ton of need, as you know. There's a ton of need. And I'm, I'm increasingly aware of the um, very deep divisions among parents related to kids going back to school. And I'm, I'm increasingly aware that people who have the, um, have the ability to somehow have their kid educated outside of of a school environment um, or at least outside of a public school environment. They are coming up with all kinds of creative solutions. There are these things now called parent pods across the country where they're hi- they're hiring teachers who don't want to go back into, you know, into the classroom. They're just hiring them. They're paying them competitive salaries to just come and teach uh, a handful of kids, in, you know, in a protected um, socially distanced environment, you know, because they have the privilege of doing that. They can, they can consolidate resources to make that happen. We couldn't do that. And, um, and our special needs kid wouldn't qualify to be in one of those groups anyway. I'm, um, and families who have an essential worker, like these parent pods exclude those kids. I mean, I'm just, it has, it, it has become a, um, I don't like what I see happening in terms of the, the social breakdown um, in communities across the country where, yes, in order to do what's best for my kid and my family, I turn my eye in a very uncaring and unconcerned way about my neighbor who is in greatest need, who's an essential worker, who can't afford not to, um, you know, not to do whatever kind of job they can do in order to feed their kid. And that kid needs to go to public school. Absolutely. And you've hit the nail on the head, Carmen. I think a lot of us only look at the situation through our own lenses. And uh, when Christians do that, uh, we know that we've stepped away from our responsibility. Uh, The public school, for example, in this case, as as we're talking, uh, they have an incredible responsibility. And you can you can um, have your opinions about public school and its value and its place and, and its role and so on. But it's a major piece in the life of most of our kids in our communities. 
but about 20% or 25% of those kids are in a very vulnerable position. They don't have parents who are in a place for whatever reason, whether it's uh, the things that you've mentioned, the essential workers or uh, special needs kids, or if their parents are experiencing mental health issues or addictions and uh, uh, joblessness and so on. They're just not in a place to educate their kids the way that many of us could if we had to. And so I think for us to think of others first, I say this a lot, but I just I think the the Christian ethic of Romans 12 and of uh, Philippians 2, where Jesus gave up rights and privileges uh, that were his to keep if he desired to. But he gave those up. Uh, in order to serve us and to become incarnate and dwell with us and and that we would have a hope. And so uh, Paul says, have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And so I think as we're reading our social media feeds, as we're reading the news, as we're reading the, the, the newest report from our uh, director of schools, I think to, to think what are, what is she, dis, what, what issues is she having to address that we know nothing about? that doesn't affect our kid in our nice suburban community lifestyle. Uh, but what, what, what other factors are in play in the decisions that are having to be made and uh, just putting other people first. And there's no perfect decision-making. There's no you know, perfect situation. That's not what we're after. But we are trying to serve our community. And if we care about the most vulnerable, we're going to put our needs secondary to those. And, and that, ha- that starts with a heart and an attitude of Christ-likeness. But you're exactly right. We're in a unique place. I know unprecedented has been used a lot, but we're in an unprecedented territory. And can you imagine trying to educate 20,000 students and help them and their parents come back into, this, into the school system uh, in a healthy way right now? Unbelievable pressure and responsibility. So a lot of grace, Carmen, a lot of grace and kindness. And then uh, for churches and people of faith to step into that and say, how can I serve you? How can I help you be successful? Your good is my goal. So how can I help you uh, be as successful as possible? So our church is hosting teachers this uh, next week for in-service and um, doing all that we can to provide facility and care for them and cheer for them as they're taking on a task that must be incredibly daunting. Well, monumental. Uh, Daryl, we look forward to catching up with you about how that, uh, how that proceeds in the upcoming semester. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys can find Daryl at crosstide.org. We'll be right back. All right, Congress is considering an act related to uh, voting rights and John Lewis. We have got uh, conversations going on with the headcount related to the census, and we want to talk about white fragility. All of that up next with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. We'll be right back. Teens today feel a sense of entitlement. They want more, demand more, and expect more than any other generation I've known. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. My friend, Dr. Tim Kimmel, puts it this way. The problem with kids brought up in our typical middle-class home is this. They're born on third base but are under the delusion they hit a triple. 
It's this platform of unbridled entitlement that causes young people to remain immature and treat people disrespectfully. They're refusing to grow up. Sadly, I often see moms and dads fostering these attitudes in their children. There's nothing wrong with wanting to give your child things, but consider how withholding privileges might teach your child much more than hitting a grand slam. Mark Gregson is hosting a virtual Families in Crisis retreat on Zoom the weekend beginning Thursday night, July 30th. To register, go to FamilyCrisisRetreat.com. Joining me now, Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Hunter, welcome back. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. All right, so we're going to jump right in because we have a lot to cover today. Um, so John Lewis, whom, whose life and legacy and Christian influence we have acknowledged and celebrated here on air um, earlier in the week, uh, there, there was a moment of silence uh, on the floor of Congress, and now there is uh, a push by Democrats to see the Voting Rights Act um, reinstituted and named after John Lewis. Could you remind us what the Voting Rights Act is or was? And yeah, yeah that would be helpful. Well, you know, obviously we've had, uh, we have a legacy of uh, voting restrictions, particularly uh, in the Deep South, um, up to the Civil Rights era, uh, where different things would be done to uh, to prevent or discourage African Americans from voting, uh, which would have been things like uh, poll taxes um, or literacy tests, uh, you know, and and of course these things not necessarily evil in and of themselves, but often in the way they were applied, you know, the. Uh, that that they may be applied very strictly to African Americans and very loosely uh, to their white counterparts. So the Voting Rights Act <clears throat> was done to ensure that unfair uh, voting practices were not put in place that would prevent African American citizens from voting. Um, this question of uh, of kind of passing a new law. Uh, has to do with a couple of things. Um, the Supreme Court uh, a few years back struck down part of the law. Um, essentially, there were parts of the country that were just held under sort of permanent suspicion uh, because of because of history, and the the court kind of struck that down, uh, basically saying that Congress would have to provide a basis for why certain states and municipalities would still be under this kind of uh, strict supervision. And uh, so, so now there's a question of, are states or municipalities doing anything to interfere with people's right to vote? And a lot of that really has to do with the, uh, the argument over things like uh, voter identification. Republicans tend to want... Uh, strict requirements of identification in order to vote because they're afraid that non-citizens will vote or they're afraid that there will be voting fraud. And Democrats tend to look at those kind of restrictions as a way to prevent uh, poor people from voting or African-Americans from voting. So that's, a, that's what a lot of the modern debate is about. 
Okay, so let's segue from there to um, this memo that was issued by the president yesterday, because I'm not saying that they're intimately or closely related, but because you do mention um, non-citizens, that is really the emphasis of uh, of the president wanting to change how the census um, is, I guess, counted, like uh, who counts and how they count and where they count and why they count. Talk with us about this. This is not this is not a law because the president can't actually um, uh, he doesn't have final authority over the census. But talk with us about what's going on here, because I think this is an important conversation. Well, when you when you ask questions about who counts for the census, the question is, do you count everybody who is present uh, in the country or do you or do you simply count uh, American citizens? Um and uh, so what what Donald Trump is is trying to do is to make sure that only citizens count for the purpose of the census. Uh, what that would what that would do is so if you if you counted literally everybody who was here, whether they were here legally or not, uh, what would happen is that you would see the states that have lots of uh, illegal immigrants get more. Uh, congressional representation. So uh, California might be bolstered by that. Texas might be bolstered by that. Arizona might be bolstered by that. You know, there are different different states where that would make a difference. And so that's the that's the argument. Basically, Trump is saying, well, if we're talking about representation uh, for the citizens of the people of the United States of America then only those people who are actually citizens and are actually governing themselves should be counted. Uh, that's what the that's what the debate's all about. So, I, I think you would have to make the assumption then that um, he's done some sort of political calculus, and he is uh, uh, he is at least guessing because we don't know until the census is actually done. He's guessing that most. What, how will I describe them? Unauthorized immigrant uh, individuals live in um, urban areas or live in, you know, maybe traditionally blue states. I'm not sure that holds up. I mean, I, I, Alabama right. has a right. huge unauthorized immigrant population. Yeah. Well, when my when we lived in Georgia, uh, my wife has spent most of her career doing uh, what you would call indigent medical care. Hmm. And um she basically, basically her, a huge part of her practice, uh, there was, uh, you know, undocumented individuals who are working in poultry plants and, and things like that. So, yeah, I'm, uh, it's entirely possible that, uh, that you could actually get Republican advantage out of, (laughs) out of counting, uh, undocumented persons. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's just, it just has to do with Trump's principles. I mean, he, Mm. Uh, he has been very strict about this throughout. He ran his his entire uh, the the two big things for him running were uh, dealing with what he felt like were unfair trade practices that affected blue collar Americans, um, and dealing with uh, the illegal immigration problem. And so this this is very consistent with what he's what he said ever since the beginning. All right. This is a story that will continue to unfold. How about you and I take a brief break and we come back. um, Can we talk about the term white fragility? There's a book by that title, but there's also just a lot of conversation around race and racism 
and uh, and this idea of white fragility. All right, that conversation up next with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker, you can find him on all the socials at Hunter Baker. Hunter, let's talk about white fragility. Um, first of all, can you just define it? Um, there's a book related to it, and then uh, and then we can sort of unpack it. Yeah, um, I first heard the term uh, probably a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, obviously being an academic. Um, this is the kind of thing that comes first to our shores uh, in the university. And uh, white fragility, uh, part of a, a constellation of different ideas having to do with how we approach race, but, uh, but white fragility in particular deals with the idea that, uh, that whites are not able to face <clears throat> their responsibility uh, for perpetuating racism and um, if if whites uh, become angry talking about that or if they try to defend themselves as individuals who are not responsible for that, you know, any, any number of things, they are demonstrating their fragility uh, and this is something to be overcome. And uh, right now this is extremely uh, popular, sweeping the bestseller lists. Uh, I'm confident that uh, millions and millions of dollars will be made in institutional seminars uh, on it, uh, but it's a big thing right now. All right, and your, uh, you know, let me just get your reaction to it. I, I think it's, I think it's very negative. I mean, <clears throat> there, there is a, uh, there's a sense in which. So take, take another thing that kind of goes along with this. What, what you're starting to hear a lot is that. To be white is to be a person of plunder. Um, so, mm. so that you know that you you inherently are part of sort of this uh, pirate race uh, that has um, that has treated other people in the world very badly and taken everything that's valuable and and things like that. And as I think about this, uh, to me, it sounds a lot like the old anti-Semitism. Uh, which was uh, you know, obviously addressed to Jews with the idea that uh, to be Jewish is to be this sort of uh, conniving, fin- financially manipulating uh, person, right, who, who tricks and traps other people uh, to gain an advantage. And uh, I think that there's something wrong with any approach that doesn't deal with individuals as individuals, uh, I don't want to be a symbol or a mascot for the white race. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I know, I understand that history is history and that, that I am implicated in history, but uh, I would strongly resist anything that kind, of, that kind of wants to portray me or see me primarily through that lens. It's interesting that you make the, uh, uh, the connection to um, historic anti-Semitism. I think that's a I think that's not only an interesting but uh, but an accurate parallel. Um and I guess I'm wondering um Hunter you know I mean that's that is probably fed by supersessionism or replacement theology. This I mean I, I mean I, there there is a way of thinking about Christianity having displaced or replaced Judaism, the new covenant having, you know, 
uh, replaced the old covenant in such a way that the chosen people of God are now Christians and not Jews. Like there, there's bad theology that would, well, I should say that differently. There is a, um, uh, there is a, a theological viewpoint that actually feeds and fosters, um, what we would have historically called anti-Semitism, and now we would just simply call anti-whiteism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's part of the the shape that some of this is starting to take. And you know, supersessionism. That's not a it's not a bad way to think about it. I mean, uh, you know, there are definitely there are definitely movements in the U.S. that kind of see well um, that a new coalition of people, um, a more diverse coalition of people will bring about a fairer, more just society uh, than the previous uh, white-dominated society, that sort of thing. And I'll just say what I've said to my children, Um, because, you know, obviously your children go to school, they ask you questions about things that have happened in the past, and and I I say it to students too. I tell them that that what I believe is that all human beings are sinful uh, and that human beings generally of any color – uh, any race, uh, any ethnicity are likely to abuse power to their own advantage. Uh, and it simply happens that, um, you know, white Europeans uh, tended to be the first people to, uh, to kind of obtain certain technology, certain methods, uh, and they gained power through that and they, and they uh, employed it uh, in the service of conquest. And I believe that Uh, It could have just as easily been Asian or African uh, or Hispanic people to do the same thing. I don't think that sin is located in one particular race. Uh, I think we're all sinful, and uh, and the the history of the world is a history of conquest, and that has to do with our our sinfulness and our lack of love uh, for neighbor. Sin's located in race if the race is human. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, right. Right. So, right. Um, all right. So we're talking about white fragility. We're talking with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. You're going to hear the terminology white fragility. We want to be um, we want to be aware of how that language is being used in the culture. We want to be um, aware as Christians of um, of how to respond when it is used. And so that's the conversation we're trying to have today. Um, Hunter, hey, talk Car- with us. Carmen, Carmen, oh, sure. Carmen mm-hmm. can you say something real quick? Yeah, I mean, so it's really important this idea of white fragility because it it blocks debate, right? Mm -hmm. See, the nature the nature of the charge white fragility is if someone makes certain claims in a discussion about race and you attempt to rebut any of those claims or argue with any of those claims, the substance of your argument is irrelevant. You are demonstrating your fragility. You're demonstrating white fragility simply in seeking to even have the argument. That's really important to recognize. And I think every culture has a cult, okay? I really think that there is a cultic nature to some of this uh, in the sense that I think a lot of people are getting the cues that either you get on board with some of this or – you're going to be isolated. You're going to be on the outside. And I think a lot of people are reacting to those cues and they're situating themselves accordingly. Yep. I think that's an excellent, um, an excellent summary. Um, we might have to circle back around to the conversation uh, about how, how are 
conversations about race and racism and racialization, um, how those conversations have evolved over time. Um, we're going to have to save that for another day, Hunter, um, because because I do think that it's helpful for people who are um, uh, whose thinking is still in the civil rights era. They still are thinking in that way. That's just not right. the way culture is even talking about um, these issues today. So I'd love to have that conversation um, uh, in a in, in a future conversation that you and I have together. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Hunter Baker. You can find him at Union University. He's on all of the uh, socials at Hunter Baker. We'll be right back. Okay, yes, I know there's a lot of people Googling supersessionism. That's fine. That's a good uh, good conversation for us. Another day. We, um, we've had conversations on you know, the range of views in terms of the relationship between Israel and America and or Judaism and Christianity. If you haven't recently thought through your theology related to Jews and Christians, related to Judaism and Christianity, related to um, the, the way in which you think about that relationship, it's a good time to do that because there is a significant uh, conversation for us to have as Christians in the culture today related to uh, to those things and applying them then to the racial conversations we're having here in the U.S. Um, also, a good, good, good thing to think through is um, whether or not you believe in meritocracy. Like, right, if, uh, if I work hard and I do well, then there should be um, uh, advantages and success that comes to me. Okay, that's all the time we've got in this uh, in this hour today. Uh, we got another hour up next. Excited about talking with Cal Thomas. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.